All right, if you want to make your way back to your seats, you can. And as you make your way back to your seats, grab a Bible that's on a seat next to you or one that you brought with you from home. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. That is where we are going to begin this morning, uh, and we'll get there in a little bit. But we're starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, We are starting a series called The Gospel According to Leviticus. And so for the next uh, six months-ish, we are going to be hanging out in the book of Leviticus. And I'm, I'm... Part of the reason I want to do this book is just because I love this graphic so much. Uh, I'm just gonna—I'm not gonna lie about it. So, uh, as we uh, prepare to approach God's word and to reflect and meditate on it, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. above everything. We pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I, I want to I set us up for the next six months this morning. And so we're actually not going to get to the book of Leviticus yet, but I want to try to answer the question of why Leviticus, right? I think that's a, that, this is a, that is a question that exists for a lot of people because perhaps at some point during our life we have tried to read through the entire Bible in the year. This was a good time to do that. Maybe you are venturing out into that resolution as we speak right now. And Genesis usually goes fine for people. Exodus, at least the front half of Exodus moves right along as we enter into the stories. But around chapter 25, once we start getting the commands around, this is what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. And we just kind of, all right, we're here, but we're going to grit our teeth through it. And then we hit Leviticus, and we're like, oh my goodness. And we just skim right through the book, or it's the book that derails the whole thing for us, and we just give up on it somewhere around February, right? Like, this is typically what happens. And it's a book that's strange for us. And what I want to try to do this morning is to make the book a, a little bit more relevant, or, or at least pique our interest about why we should study this book by setting it into its context. Because it's actually a very fascinating book that that I think gets at the central question of the Bible as a whole. And so uh, I want to, to uh, I don't, I'm not going to make any qualms about it and say like, oh, I'm going to make you just be salivating for the next six months over the book of Leviticus, but I at least hope to pique your interest. So let's start with this. In the beginning, God created the universe with one intent, that God would create and then dwell with his creation. God's intent was never to create the world and then walk away, but rather God created all the things that exist out of the very character, out of God, the essence of who God is. God is love, and it's from that place of love that God created in order that he might live in intimate, loving relationship with the creation. And so this is what we see in Genesis, right? At the very beginning of Genesis in chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that God and humanity dwell together in such a unique way that God walks with humanity in the garden. God is present intimately with his good creation. And this was the original goal, that what God created would be with God. Or another way to say it, that God would dwell with creation. Now, Genesis 3 comes. It doesn't last very long. Genesis 3 comes, and and sin enters into the world, and sin messes it all up by driving a wedge into the relationship between God and God's creation. 
through our sin as human beings, we become vandals of God's good created order, reversing the work that God accomplished. God brings order. Our sin brings disorder. God brings order. Uh, God uh, uh, calms the chaos in Genesis 1. Our sin brings the chaos. Where there was once intimacy, now there is separation. And so from Genesis 3 on, the Bible has one overarching concern. Right? It's, it's the meta theme, if you will. And it's simply the que- the, trying to answer the question, how can humanity once again dwell with God? This is the overarching concern of the Bible. It is the question that the Bible is answering. And this concern of the Bible is also the central concern of the book of Leviticus. So for all that seems foreign to us, for all that makes us stumble in our yearly Bible reading plans, for all that we just don't get and our eyes glaze over and we skim beyond the sacrifices, the blood, the food restrictions, the odd regulations about clothes and cleanliness and, and, and festival days and all of that sort of stuff, all of it is about one thing. How can we as humans dwell with God? And so we need to keep this in mind in the back of our heads as we're reading through the book. If we get lost in the details and in the minutiae, come back to this idea. How can humans dwell with God? This is what we're getting at. This is the question that we're trying to answer. This is the central theme. Okay? Now, with that in mind, let's put the book into context. All right, let's take the book of Leviticus and put it in context. And the first context that we want to put it into is the canonical context. Uh, context. So where does it fall within the Bible, right? And Leviticus falls into what they call the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the first five books, Penta, five, uh, five books of the Bible. If you want to hit the X so that uh, graphic, although awesome, goes away, that would be spectacular. There we go. That was my fault. Yep. So if we look at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see that Leviticus falls directly into the middle of the first five books. Now, this isn't by happenstance. This is very intentional. It's in the center in order to emphasize its importance. Right? The Bible often uses a, a literary structure known as a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure is very intentional in how it emphasizes what the writer, the author, wants to communicate. And so one way to think about it is to think about it like this, right? So this is what you got to visualize when you're thinking of a chiastic structure. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you're kind of walking in towards the center, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're walking out of it. If you were to you kind of see how it forms one side of an X, right? So you can imagine the other side there. Leviticus then becomes the X marks the spot. It's the point. It's the climax. It's the thing that everybody should focus on. Now, we, it's a little bit different than what we normally think about. If you were in high school or in college and you had to write a paper, we were taught that when you write a paper, you put the climax either at the beginning or the end, right? You either state your, th- sometimes you even do both. You state your theme right up front And then as you make your points to drive your theme home, you use your strongest point at the end, 
right? This is the way that we think about it. If it's most important, it's going to be up front or it's going to be at the very end. But that's not often how the Bible works. The way that the Bible often works is it puts the point, the thing right in the middle, on the center of the X and says, this is what's most important. And so Leviticus is the center of the X of the Pentateuch. Because it, more than the other four books, addresses the question, how can humanity dwell with God? So that's the canonical context of the book. But for the purposes this morning, we're going to really camp out on the historical context of the book of Leviticus. So, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt, right? They all end up in Egypt because Joseph was, was Pharaoh's right-hand man, and his family comes over. They stay in Egypt, and over time, they grow in number. Pharaoh, who no longer knew Joseph, looks out at all these people and becomes a little unnerved about them, and he enslaves them, right? The people under the oppression of Pharaoh cry out to God, and God hears their cries. And in response to the cries of the Israelites, God raises up Moses, sends Moses to Pharaoh that and, and demands, so Moses then demands that Pharaoh lets, God, let, lets God's people go. Signs and plagues follow. And Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They hit the Red Sea. By the time they hit the Red Sea, Pharaoh has changed his mind and has now gathered up his army. And his army is chasing down the Israelites. Between a rock, or between literally a sea and the people... The, the army, Moses prays to God, raises the staff, puts the staff down in the Red Sea, the waters part, the Israelites go across, Pharaoh and his army pursue, but before they get to the other side, the waters come crashing back down, and God's people now are safe on the other side of the Red Sea. God leads the people through the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, God calls Moses up on the mountain, and there God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. This puts us to Exodus 20. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's look at Exodus 20, looking at verse 18, just after Moses has read through the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and light, when people, the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So at this point in the story, Moses becomes the sole mediator between God and the people. Okay, The people have seen all that God has done. They are intimately familiar with God's power. They have seen the plagues. They've watched the seas part. I mean, they've walked across on the dry land. They've heard the lightning I don't know how they heard the lightning, but that's what the text says. I'm just being literal. They heard the lightning and the thunder, and they are terrified of God. 
And so they're so afraid of God and being in God's presence that they say, hey, we can't do that. I mean, we can't even hear God speak. So Moses, you do it for us. You be the one who goes into the presence of God, goes up on the mountain, hears from God, and then comes back. Be the mediator. Be the buffer between us and God because we can't take it. And then there's this fascinating detail that says that Moses goes up on the mountain into the darkness where God is, but the people stay at a distance. And people literally separate themselves from God here. Now, in Exodus 24, God confirms the covenant that he has made with the people of Israel. From chapters 21 to 23 there, after the Ten Commandments, uh, from 21 to 23, Moses goes back up on the mountain, converses with God, and God gives Moses a bunch of commands for how the Israelites are to relate to one another. They're really laws about this is justice, this is so you don't oppress one another as you were oppressed in Egypt, Uh, this is how you settle disputes, all of that sort of stuff happens. Then in chapter 24, God comes back and says, hey, let's confirm the covenant. And Moses says, here's everything that God commands about how we are going to interact with one another. And the people respond with, we will do that. We will enter into this covenant. We will adhere to these these laws and these commands. Moses then heads back up the mountain. This time we're told he heads back up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And what God communicates to Moses during the time on the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights is what's contained in Exodus chapter 25 to 31. A lot of it has to do with the tabernacle and how it is going to be built. But while Moses is up on the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights, something's happening back down the mountain in the camp. Back at the mountain, the base of the mountain, the people are waiting for Moses. Moses has been gone for days. And those days have turned into weeks. And you have to imagine that the people are starting to get a bit restless. When is Moses going to return? Is Moses going to return? Did, did Moses survive up there? I mean, we know what God can do. I mean, I, I'm not going in the cloud. You're not going in the cloud. We've already established. We don't want to. If we, if we hear from God, God will kill us. Why isn't Moses coming back? And if Moses doesn't come back, how are we going to hear from God? How are we going to know what to do next? Who's going to be our mediator? And so the people fashion an idol. They make an idol that doesn't terrify them. They make an idol that they can approach. The people understand that God is holy and that to be in the presence of God is a terrifying idea. And so... Yeah, Moses did that for us, but we're not sure that Moses is coming back. So who's going to do it on our behalf? How are we going to hear from God? Let's have this idol. Let's do this. And so Aaron, hearing the pressure from all the people, takes all the gold that's in camp, melts it down, and fashions a golden calf. God who's with Moses up at the top of the mountain, sees all that, this, all that is happening, says to Moses, hey, <laughs> uh, there's something going on back down at the camp. You need to go down to the base of the mountain to the people because they're destroying themselves. 
Moses goes down the mountain and he sees the golden calf. He sees the dancing and the celebration that's happening and he is outraged. He destroys the calf. Doesn't just destroy a calf. It says he, like, he, he pulverizes it into ashes, mixes it with water and makes everyone drink it. I, I would say he's a bit angry, right? Well, that's for a punishment for kids. You didn't want to eat your food? Fine, pulverize it, pour it in a cup, drink it, right? It's essentially what he's doing. Once Moses has destroyed the golden calf, he then begins to beseech God to grant forgiveness to the Israelites. God relents and does forgive, but only partially. He says the guilty will be punished, and those who are not, they're going to be spared. And then we get chapter 33, Exodus 33. It's an interesting chapter. It begins with God telling Moses that Moses and the Israelites are to go to the promised land. But then God says, but I'm not going with you. You guys go to the promised land, the land that I promised to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go to the land, but I'm not going with you because I'm still so angry with you that I don't know if you're going to live if I do go with you. So I'll send an angel ahead of you. Go, but I'm not going. And then we get verse 7. So if you've got Exodus 33, look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So, it's a little bit confusing here, and the language is a little bit... uh, uh, misleading at the front end because it says Moses used to, right? You can find translations where that used to isn't there. But from the commentaries I read and, and, and some of the, even the rabbinic tradition that I, that I read in studying for this, what they say is like at this point in time, Moses moves his tent, the tent where he would meet with God, he moves it outside the camp. So it used to be within the camp. Now he moves it outside the camp, which is a fascinate, fascinating thing to think about. I mean, imagine the shock of it. You have just angered the God of the universe, the one who you've seen do how many plagues and cross the Red Sea. Like, you've angered this God. And he said, you go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And then the one who mediates on on your behalf with this God picks up his tent and goes over there. He's not in your midst anymore. He's over there. And you can see it. You can see the cloud there. When the cloud's there, you all come out and you worship and you look at it. But it's a constant reminder that God's over there and we're right here. God's separate from us. And and I also want to just say that it's a little bit odd from a leadership perspective what Moses is doing here. Like, how did this whole problem start? Moses was absent, right? Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and while he's gone, the people 
while the cat's away, the mouse play, the mice play right? Like, that's what's happening here. So from a leadership perspective, it would say Moses should, should probably do something of the opposite where he said, I'm staying, I'm not leaving because you all can't be trusted. Instead, he says, no, we're going over here. What's going on? One of the rabbis I read, his name is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He argues that when Moses picked up his camp and tent and moved it outside of the camp, that he did it for both symbolic reasons, but then also to, to have his most audacious prayer with God, which is saying something because Moses has had some pretty audacious prayers with God. And, and Sachs writes uh, what he imagines that prayer to have been like. And I'm just going to read it for you. I don't have it up on the screens. It's a, it's a little bit long, but I want to read this prayer because I just think it's it's revealing, it's insightful. So, so this is what Sachs imagines that Moses is praying. Sovereign of the universe, I have moved my tent outside the camp to signal that it is not my distance from the people that is the problem. It's yours. How have the Israelites experienced you thus far as a terrifying, overwhelming force? They have seen you bring the mightiest empire in the world to its knees. They have witnessed you turn the sea into dry land, send food from heaven and water from rock. They know that no one can see you and live. But they also fear that no one can hear you and live. When you revealed yourself to them at the mountain, they came to me and said, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. When they made the calf, wrong-headed though they were, they were seeking a way, to, a way of encountering God without terror. They need you to be close. Whether or not this is what happened, it gets at that fundamental question about the relationship between God and humans. How can humans dwell with God? Right? That's the central, it's the central longing of this prayer. People don't need me, Moses says. They need you. It's not my distance that's the problem. It's your distance. How can we be close? How can you be close to the people? Right? It's this whole idea that God is transcendent. And we get this idea, right? We, can, we, 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 we naturally understand that God is transcendent. He's, he's infinite. God is ineffable, untouchable, indescribable, right? And yet, while God is transcendent, and we want a transcendent God who doesn't have the same problems that we have and isn't overwhelmed by the same things that overwhelm us, we also, as human beings, long to answer the question of, can this transcendent God be eminent, be close, be intimate, be near to us? Can God relate to humans, not just from heaven, but can God also relate to humans on earth? Can God meet with us, not just on the mountaintop, but will God meet with us down in the valley, in the valleys of life? Can God come close to us because if God can't come close if the transcendent God cannot be eminent what hope do we have if this is what's happening in the text as Moses moves out as the people watch Moses go and meet with God as they worship knowing God's over there but we're over here then we have to admit that this longing of the people is something that's 
that's new. It's new within human history. It's not new for humans to think that God is transcendent. And people have long thought that God was transcendent. But what's new is this longing for and this belief that God can also be intimately, or can be imminent. I mean, and part of what's shaping the people's longing is that they know that God can be intimate. They have experienced God act in history that is completely unique. I mean, they walked across dry land, seeing the walls of water on either side of them. They have seen the water come from the rock. They have picked up and eaten the manna that was lying on the ground. They know that God acts in history, but now God is over there. And will he ever be close? I just got to imagine, like, if you have experienced God the way that the Israelites have, and now you are looking and you see that cloud, and it's outside of your camp, that has to be one of the more alienating experiences a human being can have. You know that the transcendent God is, has the possibility of being close. You know that one person talks face-to-face with that God. But now that God can't even be in your midst? Again, this, this, this is what the crisis of the golden calf brought about. And it's also the crisis that, the, the, that is highlighted here. Moses, as the sole mediator, the sole connection between the finite and the, uh, the infinite and the finite, Moses, as this sort of human touch point between heaven and earth. And without Moses, God is distant. Without Moses, we're on our own. And so how can humans dwell with God? And God's answer to that question is the tabernacle. Back in Exodus 25, before the golden calf incident, Moses is up on Mount Sinai conversing with God. And God says to Moses, have my people build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Now this is the first time in all of scripture that the word to dwell is used in relationship with God. It's the first time it happens. And The word dwell, it doesn't just mean like, oh, that's where God lives. It's it's, it's got a certain kind of, I've said it a lot, but intimacy to it, right? It, It literally means a neighbor, someone who lives next door. So the God who created the stars and the mountains and and, and the, the entire universe is about to become a neighbor, And the rest of Exodus, from the golden calf incident on, describes what the the building of the tabernacle and the house of the Lord, what it will, before that in verses 25 to 31, it's what is it supposed to look like and how do you build it? And then the rest of the book is the Israelites building it. And by the end of the book of Exodus, we find the tabernacle has been built and the furnishings have all been put in place and all is ready. And then something interesting happens. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, starting at verse 34. 
and the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during the travels, during their travels. So at the very end of Exodus, we got the tabernacle of the Lord has been built. The cloud of the Lord and the glory of the Lord settle over the tabernacle. And Moses can't enter it. (laughs) Why not? Up to this point, Moses has been going into the in and out of the cloud and the glory of the Lord, the whole book of Exodus. He's the only one who does. At one point, he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, all right, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by. Like, if anyone can enter the, temp- enter the tabernacle at this point, it's Moses. And it kind of makes no sense to say, well, Moses can enter because the cloud is there. Because, again, Moses has been going into the clouds as it settled on Mount Sinai the whole time. Why not? Because if he can't go in, then no one can. Again, if Moses isn't here... How will we hear from God? And this point of the story where Moses is not allowed to enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord there is the question that Leviticus is answering. The whole book of Leviticus is about this one idea. Who can enter into the presence of the Lord and how do they enter? That's the book. It's a book that is about deepening one's intimacy with God. It's a book about how one comes into the presence of God and meets with God in God's tabernacle. And ultimately, Leviticus is a book that foreshadows Jesus. John, at the very beginning of his gospel, says, The Word became flesh and dwells among us. That sounds... I mean... It doesn't sound similar. It's the same language that God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 25. Build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. The literal translation in John's gospel is not in the word became flesh and dwells among us. It's the word became flesh and tabernacled. The word that gets translated dwell is literally the word that means tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Or as Eugene Peterson says it in his, in his translation, the message, the word took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. John is picking up on this theme, on this question that begins in Exodus and that Leviticus answers. How can humans dwell with God? And he says the answer is Jesus. This is why I'm so excited about this series. Leviticus is all about how God both comes close to us and makes a way for us to come close to God. It helps us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. It's how we begin to see that Jesus is the ultimate coming close of God to us. It's in Jesus that we see that God makes his dwelling among us. 
That God is no longer outside the camp, out there, but he's here. That it's no longer reliant on some Moses who's going to mediate us because God himself came and mediated on our behalf in the person of Jesus. Jesus is both the dwelling place of God and the way to God. And Leviticus just builds on this and helps us understand why we need this and and, and what it's going to look like. And all the questions that Leviticus is going to try to answer, we see the ultimate expression of them in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the question of how we can be near to God. Jesus is the answer to the question of how can a transcendent God become eminent to us. Jesus is the answer to the question of how do we purify ourselves to be in the presence of a holy God. Jesus is the answer. And so we're going to walk through this book over the next six months. And my hope is that we become not just more convinced of the fact that Jesus is the answer, but we trust it more. And for all of our efforts to build a golden calf because we're terrified of the, pro- of, the, of the prospect of coming into the presence of God, we would know that we do not need to be terrified because Jesus has come. Because God dwells among us in his presence. That every time we come to the table, we come into the presence of the resurrected Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This isn't a table of remembrance. It's a table where, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are lifted up into that throne room. We come to the table, which is a time in which we recognize the way to God himself. How can humans dwell with God? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And for the next six months, we're going to be reminded of that again and again and again and again. Because it's an idea that should never grow old. It is an idea we should never grow bored of. And quite truthfully, it's an idea that we will never plumb the depths of. Jesus is the way to dwelling with God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you, the transcendent God, have, become clo- have come close to us. That you dwell among us. And you do so through your Son, Jesus Christ. May, may that idea inspire us. May it capture us. May it bring us a sense of peace. For we are no longer alienated from God looking at you as though you were outside the camp. But you have come in, come close, you have touched. You continue to do so. For this we give you thanks. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.